Thank you, Frank and Missy. There's one thing, starting a new year, well, we need to think about how much God loves us. He, he truly loves us enough that He has sent His Son to die for us, bear our sins. If you would, please turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, be verses 5 through 10. We'll pick up again uh, for our passage today. I've titled this uh, message, A New Day for Nineveh. We'll find, looking at this, that there occurred a sensational change in this city uh, that historically behaved very wickedly, very wickedly. And and this change is evidence of the favor of God and His grace. I'm confident this text is especially appropriate for each of us sitting here today on New Year's Day. Nearly every one of us wants to see our life improve through change, right? Every single one of us. Uh, We would love to see uh, or receive the favor of God, and I do not believe that implies merely financial success. Uh, What we want most of us here to enjoy, um, when we get right to the bottom line of things, peace, Uh, Our hearts long for something more significant than money. Uh, We want to lay our heads down after dinner, after a satisfying meal and rest. And we want to rise up from our pillows. We want to work. We want to provide. We want to see peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That's what we would like to see. And our hearts desire a clear conscience so we don't uh, lay down our head on our pillow at night looking over our shoulders for fear that there might be a warrant for our arrest. We don't want that. We want to live in peace. We want to have faithful relationships with friends. We want friends to be reliable, trustworthy. We want good health. We want good health. These are the things that we truly want. At least in principle, would you agree? Well, Scripture suggests that many of these things that you and I and nearly every American longs for, every person on on the planet longs for, uh, is available. To Christians, it's available. We simply behave as Nineveh behaved. Turning away from our sins, turning our hearts and our minds towards God, and our Lord's brother James shows us how sins interfere with the peace on earth, with our relationship with God, how it sabotages our lives, And we should note in this context, James is speaking to Christians. Speaking to Christians. In James chapter 4, verse 2, You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder, obviously through slander. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, James says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is a promise. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. There you have another promise from the Word of God. So some of us, maybe all of us here, need to begin 2017 with mourning and gloom. Sound like a good reason to come to church. Mourning and gloom, that could be Ohio State today, Pastor Weiler. <laughs> wow, that's, that's tough. But before God will draw us near to Him, we are told we must turn from our sins Turn towards God. Uh, that, that is what we often refer to as repentance. And in our passage today, we observe some ways by which Nineveh expressed outwardly their repentance. The people of Nineveh now have finally acknowledged their sin. That's a great way to get a fresh start in a new year. Uh, their sins had actually brought devastation into their lives. We have learned that it has exposed them to God's judgment. Uh, there, there are always negative consequences to sin no matter how harsh they are. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Nineveh's quick, immediate change of heart demonstrates that they knew what they'd been doing merited God's judgment. They realized that. They, they weren't real nice people in their culture. They responded to Jonah's preaching in the only rational way found in Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which was in his hands. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. So, so Nineveh has partied, they've rebelled, they've committed every kind of detestable act We'll talk about that next week with wicked ways and violence. It's to the point that like Sodom, God's ready to just destroy them. Turn them upside down. And when they heard Jonah's message, they finally broke down and said, you know what, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Uh, the lifestyle we're living, it isn't worth it. What we're doing in our lives is not making us stronger, it's making us weaker. It's not making us healthier, healthier, it's making us sicker. It's actually destroying us and our families. They came to that conclusion. It's time to begin anew, they said. They began by visibly expressing great remorse over their sinful behavior. You know, this is in complete contrast to the self-help culture of America today. Completely in contrast you and I can't begin anew or even expect to begin anew in 2017 without first acknowledging where we've been. Where have we been? You know, health gurus, life coaches across America, a lot of pastors today are going to urge people to expect great things of 2017. It's going to be a wonderful year. They're going to advise you to put your failures out of your mind. They're in the past. Forget about them. Insist you just wipe the slate clean. That's what they're going to say. 
James indicates, well, you don't just automatically get a clean slate as a Christian. You've already been regenerate. You're in sin. He said many sins there as he was writing. And you and I first have to acknowledge where we have sinfully erred. Christians call that confession. It's a lost art in the faith. Confession. People don't even talk about it anymore. To anticipate God's blessing, we must first humble ourselves, Scripture says. And James said it this way, Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. He will lift you up. James would say, Let us begin 2017 with confession. With confession. An acknowledgement of sin or confession, that is an indication of genuine grace. It's genuine repentance. We're not to be proud. God resists the proud, but rather we are to become humble because we realize of our, all of our many sins. We're humble. Our humility then magnifies the wonderful grace, uh, the wonderful love of God, the forgiveness of God. And as we look at Nineveh, the way in which many cultures of that day expressed this sadness, this remorse, this gloom, was to wear sackcloth. When Jacob was told by his sons, remember when Joseph was torn apart, they said, by wild beasts. Genesis 37, 34, uh, verse 34 indicates, So Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. Sackcloth, it's a simple weave, it's a coarse fabric, often made of goat hair. Uh, it was commonly worn by the poor, by prisoners, and slaves. It was a very cheap fabric. Ezekiel 7.18 indicates that it was worn by those who mourn. You put on sackcloth. So, so to put on sackcloth, it, it, to pull it out of your closet and to put it on is a symbol of sorrow, of mourning. It's a symbol of lowering yourself, becoming humble. It was an expression of humility. Uh, let's just say in our day, it would be the polar opposite of putting on a red party dress and high heels. Polar opposite of that. And, and we've heard many times an expression of, of some way or another, you know, you feel how you dress. You know, you dress better, you feel better, you dress down, you feel down. Sackcloth says, I'm nobody. I am nobody. Sitting on ashes was a similar display of sorrow and repentance. Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. How? Sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus said that sorrow over sin, repentance was displayed with sackcloth and ashes. Genuine repentance then is accompanied by an inward sadness, a remorse, which translates into some visible expression. Sometimes we wear black at funerals. Sadness. And, and to, stare, to demonstrate how widespread the sin was at Nineveh, the remorse was displayed by everybody. Verse 5 says, From the greatest to the least of them. 
You know, the people acknowledge we're all in this together. All of us. The sin wasn't isolated to one group that everybody could blame. It was widespread across all social strata so the people in Nineveh couldn't just blame all of their social ills and all their problems on the greed in Wall Street. They couldn't blame all the murder on the streets of Chicago. They couldn't blame all the drug abuse on the city of New Orleans. Everybody's always looking for a scapegoat to blame. These people in Nineveh, they they each owned up. The question is, does sin cross all social boundaries? Oh, it does. It does. And, And is greed and dishonesty, is, is that confined to a shady stock deal? Or is greed and dishonesty also evident in stealing a signal from the cable company? Yes. Is murder only putting a gun to a gang member's head? Or is murder, as Jesus would say, assassinating someone else's character? It is sexual immorality. Is that, is that only expressed in a gay pride parade? Or is it practiced in premarital sex, in uh, pornography, lusting after your, after your neighbor's, neighbor's wife? Practiced everywhere. Practiced in all kinds of things. Is racism, is it expressed only in voting for a candidate? because they're of one color? Or is it expressed in voting for a candidate of any color, for their color? Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 5, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So one sign that there is a new day dawning in Nineveh is that they recognized together that their sin had gotten them Uh, so far out of control that they all deserve God's judgment together. They're all going to perish together. They all need God's grace together. They need His unmerited favor. So repentance was uh, was expressed from the greatest to the least of them, all of them together. And repentance itself is an indication that God's grace had reached Nineveh. Our scripture reading earlier, did the church in Jerusalem, did, did they glorify the Gentiles because of how smart they suddenly became? No. They glorified God because he granted repentance to the Gentiles. God is the source and the impetus of the change of the heart involved with repentance. The change of heart was made visible. And verses 6 and 7, of all things, show the government gets involved with repentance. Oh, how horrible. Wish our government would get involved with repentance. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. So the king has issued this as a decree, as a proclamation. The question comes, 
Is the king just getting on the bandwagon? Or did his royal decree initiate the visible behavior of the people? The way that the passage is constructed in the Hebrew, the answer is, we don't know. We don't know for sure. Um, There's no chronology implied in the original Hebrew. There's no way we can know for certain which came first, the king's proclamations or the people proclamation or the people's actions unlike chapter 2 where it said Jonah was swallowed by the whale and then he prayed or after he prayed then the whale or fish vomited him out there's no indicators in this passage about timing chronology and it is a common feature of the Hebrew narrative uh, this type of writing to mention the outcome first of what happened first and then the way that it came to happen afterward. That is common. So we don't know for sure. Uh, Is everybody getting on the same page? Yes. They all repented. The king, the nobles, and the people. Most often though, in a monarchy like this, especially in a monarchy, people will follow the leader. And after reading through a bunch of analytical resources whole bunch of different places. My impression is, after, after really looking at a lot of things, you, you may disagree with this, that's fine. It is most likely that verse 6 describes what happened, and verse 7 documents why it happened. That's most likely. Verse 7 documents that the king stepped away from his throne. This was enormously symbolic in that day. This did not happen. Yes, for a bathroom break or something, they did. No, this is not what that's talking about. This is an official diplomatic act by the king. He stepped away from his throne. This is most likely uh, the king of Assyria who resided in Nineveh at the time. He's called the king of Nineveh. Very similar to the, the king of Israel, Ahab was called the king of Samaria, where he lived, the city. His name was Asurdan III, and he reigned over Assyria from 772 B.C. to 755 B.C. This guy was a very powerful man. He stepped down from his throne. He laid aside his royal cloak and traded it for sackcloth. In exchange for his throne, he sat down on ashes, another symbol of humility, and he issued this decree in verse 7. In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd or flock, taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let the men call on God earnestly. So the king, the government calls people to pray. And they ask people to turn away from their sins. That each may turn away from his wicked way and away from his violence which is in his hands. You know, it's, it's, it's just enormously important for us to understand. And we do subliminally, but we don't acknowledge it very often. We need to understand the influence of leaders. In God's purpose, in his sovereignty, God uses leaders. He does. And yes, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. God turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 21.1 God removes kings and he establishes kings. Daniel 2.21 And God establishes the boundaries of nations. Acts 17.26 We got nothing to fret. God is in control. 
And we often find that God uses leadership. We observe throughout Scripture that, that generally human beings will follow leaders, either bad or good. Generally, the people will follow leadership. For this reason, leadership bears a very heavy responsibility in Scripture. If a leader is in step with God's Word, very often the people that are influenced by that leader uh, will break out in revival. We saw that with Josiah, King Josiah. Reforms and revival will break out under a good king. And King Asserdan modeled remorse and repentance. He called a fast. That'd probably be appropriate after the holidays, huh? A fast. I've said here a number of times, a leader can't expect the people to do what the leader is not willing to do. A pastor can't anticipate his congregation will evangelize if he himself won't evangelize. A father can't expect his wife and children to be faithful in personal devotions if he himself doesn't have or any evidence of devotions. Generally, moral behavior rises and falls on leadership. That's what, that's what God does. He uses leadership. That's a fact. It's one reason the Bible teaches that uh, those who teach the Bible, very often church leaders, they will be held to a stricter judgment. Leadership has, has so much influence over other people. They will have a stricter judgment. And we discover a few important lessons here in Nineveh. These ought to be encouraging. You all look just thrilled. New Year's, wow, this is great. Mourning and gloom. This is the path to revival. Important lesson, I love this. Looking at King Asserdan. Does a leader at any level need to have a perfectly spotless history in order to encourage those under his influence to change? Well, I hope not. Asserdan probably wasn't that reputable of a guy, knowing what was going on in, in Assyria at this time, and Nineveh. But God raised him up for that day. And, and Asserdan said, you know what? I'm turning from my sin. And the people said, well, we're going to turn from our sin too. And, and as a father in your home, you don't have to be a perfectly righteous father. You don't have to have years of of, of a spotless record in order to be a positive influence on your home. You're a leader. And, and if you talk to your family about stepping in a new direction, chances are they're going to follow. Chances are they're going to follow. You don't have to be perfect. You don't need to take the time to become perfect. You're not going to become perfect. It's not going to happen. What you need to do as a leader of your household is say, you know what, I'm just done with the way things were. Let's begin anew this next year. Follow me. A lot of times a family just wants the leader to step up and say, follow me. We see repeatedly in Scripture that the Holy Spirit uses the Father to save entire households. That was with Cornelius that we just read about. The Philippian jailer, the same way. You also see children will follow mothers into the faith when there's an absent father. Generally, the promises, the, the problems in the home, rather, are in great measure a responsibility of the leadership in the home. There's hope. There's hope. When you are in a position of leadership, you have the ability to influence change for the good. 
what we really need in America at all levels, all levels of leadership, is we need leaders to turn godly and repent, to change. Admit that the direction, much of the direction, not all the direction, much of the direction we've gone is wrong, immoral, unbiblical, and we need to change our minds. We've talked about enough, I'm not going to go in there. Abortion is murder. We need to change our minds. This is a textbook definition of repentance, change of the mind. Repentance is a change of the heart and mind. Heart and mind, very similar in Scripture. Almost same thing. They, they looked at the heart as the mind, the deciding uh, impetus of things. Repentance is a change of the heart, the mind, that results in a change of behavior. A change of belief. It's a turning of the heart away from sin and a turning back to God. Repentance is also a reflection and reaction to the Holy Spirit, as we saw with Cornelius. It's a reaction to spiritual regeneration through the washing and renewing of the heart by the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. Repentance is, uh, Acts 11 said, granted by God. That's the source. That's the impetus. Repentance is our response to God's grace. That's what repentance is. Us responding to his wonderful grace. And by his design, God often uses leadership to effect changes in our minds. Christians are going to have to, once again, rise up and lead. That's what we have to do. Fathers, you're going to have to get out of the recliner and spiritually lead your families. Parents, the public schools, suffering because Christians won't run to school board. They won't run for it. They won't lead. Uh, you think the city, per, uh, city permit process in Port St. Lucie is ridiculous? That you'd be right. Um, run for city council. Lead. Lead the change. You don't think that you, anybody would ever vote for you? You looked in the news? If God wants you there, he'll put you there for his purposes, good or bad. We need people to lead. As for churches, why have most gone liberal and Arminian in America? Most churches have. Why? They lack pastors who will lead by biblical principles. Leadership matters tremendously. Tremendously. Because although repentance or a change of heart is granted by God's grace, the declaration of a king encourages appropriate behavior. Leading the change is our role. It's a Christian's role. You really think that the unbelievers are going to lead us closer to Christ? No. No. We can't let them lead us. Leading is our role. Scripture is very consistent here with how this applies uh, to the Christian involvement in change. Our involvement. God is the impetus. He is the cause. We are his ambassadors. We're his representatives. Repentance or a change of heart is a sovereign act of God. No doubt about that in Scripture. And only he receives the glory for it. That's why the church in Jerusalem was glorifying God, that Gentiles had come to faith. Nobody here can change a heart without God's involvement. Nobody. You can't even change your own heart without God's involvement. Conviction of sins is a divine ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, verse 7, 
I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Why does the Holy Spirit convict of sin? Jesus answers that in verse 9. Because they do not believe in me. The world does not believe in him. That's why the Holy Spirit has to get involved. Without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 3.10, how many seek after God? None. Not even one. Not even one. And every single one of us, without God's mercy, without his sovereign conviction, we'd happily march in our sins right on to hell. That is what we would do without God intervening in our lives. We call that total depravity. You ever had friends that really off the wall and they say, well, you know, I'll be fine if I go to hell. I'm going to party with my friends there. That's lunacy. You aren't going to be happy there. No, that's total depravity. They can't even reason or rationalize uh, the judgment of God. But Jesus said in John 16, verse 7, that once our hearts feel that conviction of sins, we begin to fear judgment. At that point, God uses the message of the gospel to regenerate or change our hearts, convert our hearts. God does it. It's just as with Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. As she was listening to Paul preach this message. Remember, we said even with Peter, there's a message, a messenger that goes to Cornelius, right? Paul went to Lydia with the message, and we are told, Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond. Sovereignty. And James explains it works this way for everyone. James 1.18 says, In the exercise of his will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. His will. He brought us forth through the word of God. He opened our hearts. We're convicted of sins. God rebirths us through his word. He is so gracious towards his chosen. Listen to this. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us as adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. A couple, ver- a couple verses later in Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. All things. Do you see the glory of God displayed in his power in drawing people to repentance? He gets the glory. Conviction of sins, repentance, faith, salvation, all different reflections of of regeneration, of repentance. It's entirely a marvelous act of God. This is why Jesus indicates in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus adds this, And I will raise him up on the last day. That means that God's call is effectual and irresistible. Irresistible grace. John 6.37 says this, All that the Father, Jesus said, gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. 
Verse 39 in the same chapter, John 6, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. But I will raise it up on the last day. You know, we've learned in this book, God is in control of everything. He controls the weather, the animals, the huge fishes of the sea. In chapter 4, we're going to see that God controls a plant and a worm. Jonah learned the lesson of Job. Remember Job? Job 42, verse 1. Job answered the Lord. This is after all the suffering and everything uh, had, had occurred. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Sovereignty. Therefore, Jonah submits while in the belly of the fish, although he really didn't want to go to the Gentiles in Nineveh, he declares chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. That means we don't decide. It's of the Lord. It's his doing. Reference Romans chapter 9. If you'd like to look at that some more. So we know repentance is granted by God. He has predestined us according to his will, not ours. And we know none of us can lose our salvation. Jesus will raise us up on the last day. These are the powerful mercies of the grace of God. There's surely a question. I'll answer it briefly and quickly. I think this will suffice. Wouldn't that mean that we're just robots? No. Not at all. Not at all. It means before conversion, our hearts were in bondage to sin. We were slaves to it. We were spiritually dead, Ephesians 2 verse 1, and completely blind so that we cannot see the way to Christ. We're blind. We're not robots. God converts our depraved hearts, makes us alive, Ephesians 2 verse 5, and removes our blindness so that we can see. Now we see as Christians. We couldn't see it before. Anybody remember being an unbeliever as an adult? Blind. He doesn't just remove a blindfold. He fixes our blindness. He converts our depraved hearts. He makes us alive. Um, We don't worship God because we're robots. We adore God because He has cured us of our blindness. We worship because we can see. He's set us free from the bondages of darkness. The bondage of the will. We're in bondage. We're blind. And and this is a marvelous illustration in John chapter 9. If you'd like to look at this later too. Great stuff. God is so uh, amazing. Jesus here. There was a blind man from birth. Blind from birth. Not blindfolded. Blind. And Jesus said the reason... He was born blind. He tells the disciples this. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why were we as sinners born blind? So that the works of God can be displayed through us. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul talks about that with himself. And Jesus declared to the blind man and the disciples there, I am the light of the world. Then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. You know the story. The man's blindness is cured. But the Pharisees don't give glory to God. Pharisees didn't even like it. Instead, they call Jesus a sinner. 
and they get really mad because they healed somebody on the Sabbath. So they interrogate the man and his parents. In John 9.19, the Pharisees ask the parents, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. And who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. And later it reads, So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. They're sounding spiritual now, the Pharisees. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner, because he healed on the Sabbath. The man answered them, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. The one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. God has sovereignly opened our eyes. The response of us is to give glory to him. And John Newton wrote a hymn concerning this. If you want to sing along, one line, fine. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That is amazing grace right there. We teach at Port St. Lucie Bible Church not the unregenerate, unsaved man's freedom of the will. We teach the bondage of the will, the blindness, and we also acknowledge what are known and teach the doctrines of grace, God's saving grace, which accurately reflects Scripture. As Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. We were blind. Um, This is most often referred to as Reformed theology. I've said that before, months back, but if you're new here, um, these biblical truths, the reason for that, they were articulated at the Reformation through the Reformers such as Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox. That's why they call it Reformed theology. Uh, The only reason I can imagine anyone would be offended by the doctrines of grace or that God took, uh, cured their blindness is that they want credit for curing their own blindness. I don't know. I don't know. Once we become Christians, the chains are gone. We've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me, we sing. And the veil that laid over our heart, the blindness that we had, is removed by God. Then we have the opportunity to choose whether we're going to yield to the flesh or serve Christ. Now there comes opportunity. Paul struggled with that, you know, in Romans 6, 7, 8. And we, we, the unsaved man, he doesn't have that choice to serve God. He's blind. We have the choice now uh, after sovereign regeneration. So we have some freedom of the will. This is, this is exposed. This is uh, the position, too, if you're curious, if you're new here. Uh, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, Chuck Swindoll, uh, Al Mohler, Charles Spurgeon. This is, this is their doctrine. This is what they preach. And, and though God is in control of all things, we, being spiritually reborn, we now long as did the king of Nineveh, uh, we long to urge people to repent, to respond to God's message, so that God will receive increased glory. All glory goes to God. You can reference Romans chapter 10 here. This is why we get involved, because we're told by Paul, how will they believe in him who they've not heard? They can't. And how will they hear without a preacher? So we're the ambassadors. 
We're the ambassadors here. Christians join God in his work of redemption. There's no theological conflict here concerning God's plan and our participation in it. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We have become partakers of the divine nature of God, we are told in Scripture. And John 4 says that out of our innermost beings uh, flow rivers of liver, living water. So genuine Christians are concerned with God, what God's concerned with. That's why we join up with Him. We're concerned with reaching His chosen. We have the mind of Christ. That's why we're with Him. Christians are in harmony with God's plan. We don't oppose it. We cooperate and join Him with it so that we become servants of the Most High God and we urge people to repent and respond to God's Word. That's our role. 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7. We're almost through here. What then is Apollos... And what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God was causing the increase. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who provides the increase, causes the growth. I anticipate that most of us in America want to experience God's blessing in 2017. Um, We'd like to see revival, repentance in a broad scale in our country. I know we'd all love to see that. A holiness, revival, similar in our cities to what might be seen in Nineveh. We need to play an active role in that. Evident from today, leadership, being ambassadors, because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, cooperating with God's plan now, instead of being in opposition to Him as we were as unbelievers. But we have to acknowledge... And I'm convinced of this personally. If there's going to be a revival in America, there's going to be a real one, not one of these phony ones. If there's going to be a real revival in America, we're going to have to acknowledge beforehand that if God decides to do it, bring revival to our borders and cities, God receives the glory. God did it. We didn't do it through our mechanisms and such. Don't even need to be eloquent of speech. Doesn't mean you have to be incompetent of speech, but God does it. And we're inviting God to do it in America uh, that he would grant the repentance that Acts 11 says leads to eternal life. I'm going to ask the men to come forward. We're going to serve the Lord's Supper. And as they do, what we need to do is just plead with God that he will send his Holy Spirit to intervene in America. Convict of sins that we would have the courage to, to join with him in that ministry to bring the glory of God, that, that God would intervene in America. There will be no revival without the moving of God's Spirit. We cannot make it happen. It's not within our power. We can cooperate. Uh, we'll discuss uh, some of the differences between what happened in Nineveh and what ha- would happen here. There surely are differences. We'll discuss some of those next week. Our message is different than Jonah's, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. I hope that's not the message we're going forth with. Times have changed. I hope we realize that's not our message. An outward expression of repentance is different that we would see today. Does anyone here wear sackcloth and sit in ashes? Why not? Jesus said to do it, right? We'll talk about that. We'll know why we don't. How about fasting? Are Christians bound to fast? Do we have to fast? If so, how often? When? Why? 
So a whole bunch of misunderstanding about fasting. I hope to clear up some of that next week. And if you're visiting here for the first time, we partake in the Lord's Supper, and, uh, and we do so, we celebrate it through open communion, celebrating the body and blood of Christ that was shed for us uh, on the cross to redeem us, redeem our sins. And it's a good occasion, we're told in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine ourselves, to change our minds about some things. Change our minds. It often gives us a chance to renew, and there's no better time than the present. I want to start with a clean slate in the next year. It's good to confess where we've gone wrong in the last year.